I'm Lucy Marcus. And I'm Stefan Wolf. And welcome to Navigating the Vortex. We are delighted to be with you for our weekly catch-up and a deep dive into some of the most important and complex issues of today and tomorrow. Weeks like this were made for Navigating the Vortex. Let's run down what's swirling around in the ESA. First off, there's the debt ceiling. We'll talk about that today. Then there are Trump's legal wars. We won't talk about that today, but I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to do so. Then there is lift golf sport washing, something we'll be delving into into a future episode. Of course, the Ukraine war carries on. Russian Victory Day was a rather subdued affair, and we'll come back to that, as well as to the ongoing crisis in Sudan. All of that we'll talk about today. AGM season continues today, and we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on one company that brings together politics, energy, power, leadership, governance, money, and more. By the end, you'll wonder if it's a Shakespearean play or corporate governance or both. And of course, most importantly, Eurovision. We'll be talking about that for sure. First off, though, Steph, last week you were in Austria, and this week you're in Germany. I basically haven't seen you. Anything to say about what you have been seeing and doing in your travels? Well, my travels to Germany and Austria certainly explain why I have such a strong German accent. But more seriously, the trip to Austria was very interesting. First, I had a few meetings in Vienna at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And then I went to a workshop on the Western Balkans organized by NATO's Partnership for Peace and the Austrian Ministry of Defense. There we discussed resilience in the countries of the Western Balkans, or rather the lack thereof. With countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina and North Macedonia very fragile and polarized, and relations between Serbia and Kosovo very tense again. Most intriguing for me was the fact that the region as a whole has fundamentally not moved very much beyond the state of affairs in the late 1990s. And many of its problems today have the same fundamental drivers that they had then, essentially the lack of integration of the ethnically and religiously diverse societies in the region. And this has impeded economic development and political stabilization for the last quarter of a century in the Western Balkans. This lack of social cohesion is also apparent in many other states and societies in Europe, isn't it? Exactly. And this is what we are focusing on in an expert meeting here in Flensburg, where I am now at the European Center for Minority Issues. Today's workshop is part of a series where we take stock of the work of the High Commissioner on National Minorities, a unique institution within the OSCE solely tasked with preventing inter-ethnic relations spilling over into violent conflict. The HCNM, as it is known for short, has been around for 30 years now, and while it's been far from always successful in its conflict prevention mission, there are some very valuable lessons to be learned on the way forward. But enough of me and my troubles. In our last podcast, we already touched upon the AGM season, which is now in full swing. And one of the companies you have been keeping an eye on for some time now is Enel, with their AGM on the 11th of May. I want to talk to you about what happened with them that called up the headlines. But first, can you give some background on what is so special about the corporate governance rules for appointing directors to public companies in Italy to lead us into the discussion? Sure. In Italy, the corporate governance rules that govern the appointment of directors to the boards of public companies have several features that distinguish them from the rules in other countries. 
One of the key features is the role of the Board of Statutory Auditors, the Collegio Sindicale, in overseeing the appointment process. The Board of Statutory Auditors is a supervisory board that is mandatory for all Italian listed companies, and it has the responsibility of verifying the independence and professional qualifications of the directors being proposed for appointment. In addition, Italian law requires that a certain number of directors be chosen from among candidates nominated by minority shareholders who must represent at least 120th of the share capital. And this is intended to ensure that minority shareholders have a voice in the appointments process and can participate in the governance of the company. Another important feature of the Italian corporate governance rules is the use of a list voting system, which allows shareholders to vote for a slate of candidates rather than individual directors. This system is designed to promote the representation of different interests and perspectives on the board, as shareholders can vote for a slate that includes candidates with different backgrounds, skills, and experiences. Overall, the Italian governance rules for appointing directors to public companies emphasizes the importance of transparency, accountability, and diversity in the boardroom, and seeks to ensure that all shareholders have a voice in the governance of the company. I don't want to say that my head is spinning now, but it certainly sounds interesting. So this week's Ennals Corporate Governance has made headlines. But before you dive into that, can you first talk very quickly about what Enel actually does? Okay. Enel is an Italian multinational energy company that operates in the production, distribution, and sale of electricity and gas. It is one of the largest utility companies in the world, and it is Italy's largest listed company. And it has a significant presence in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa. Its activities include the production of electricity from a variety of sources, including fossil fuels, nuclear power, and renewable energy such as wind, solar, hydroelectric power. The company also operates in the distribution and sale of electricity and gas to customers, both domestically in Italy and internationally. So it's not your traditional energy company that basically just pollutes and does bad things to the environment in our future. Well, in recent years, Enel has been focused on expanding its renewable energy portfolio and has made significant investments in wind and solar projects around the world. The company says that it is committed to achieving a carbon neutral future and it has set ambitious targets to reduce its carbon emissions and increase its renewable energy capacity. It's also involved in a number of research and development projects with a particular focus on new technologies and innovations in the energy sector. Also, since we've been talking about the role and responsibilities of companies in the communities in which they operate, just a quick mention that it has the Enel Foundation and it supports research and educational initiatives aimed at promoting sustainable development and tackling climate change. In many ways, it draws together a lot of the things that we like to talk about, corporate governance, energy and climate, politics, companies operating globally, and the impact of multinationals and the oversight and ethics of that work. So on that basis, now, what was important about the AGM that was held on the 11th of May and what was the result of it? 
Well, it's fascinating, really. I mean, if you are a geek like me, <laughs> the issues center around who has the power to select board members and thus to steer the direction of the company. This goes back to what I talked about before about the percentages for voting. The Italian government is the majority shareholder as they hold 23% of the company. The Treasury's nominee, Paolo Scaroni, who has been CEO of both Enel and Eni in the past and is, interestingly, currently the chairman of AC Milan Football Club, was elected as the new chairman and he faced opposition from Covalis Capital, a hedge fund that wanted more shareholder democracy and proposed a senior banker as someone that they wanted as chairman of the company and as an alternative candidate. However, they failed to secure any board seats because they didn't have a large enough percentage, while the Treasury's six candidates, including Scaroni and Flavio Cantaneo, the next CEO of Enel, were all elected. The other three board members were chosen by Assegestioni, which is the representative of all minority shareholders, so institutional investors and the like. The vote was seen as a test of the influence that the Italian government has over strategic state-backed companies. And the outgoing CEO, who has overseen Enel's transition to renewable energy since 2014, did not receive the support of Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni's right-wing government. So to go back to their international work and global impact, where does Enel operate and what exactly are they doing in these countries? Well, Enel operates in numerous countries. Here's some examples of their work in a few of these countries. So in Italy, Enel is based in Rome, and it's the largest electricity provider in Italy. The company operates a variety of energy generation facilities across the country, including gas-fired and hydroelectric power plants. In Spain, it owns and operates several renewable energy projects, including wind farms and solar power plants. It's the largest renewable energy company in the U.S. with a presence in 28 states, and it operates over 70 wind, solar, and geothermic power plants in the country. Also, Enel is one of the largest electricity distributors in Brazil serving over 17 million customers across the country. And the company also operates several renewable energy projects in Brazil, including wind and solar power plants. In South Africa, Enel operates several renewable energy projects. So these are just a few examples of Enel's work around the world, but you can begin to see that choices that are made about who sits on the board are not just about what's happening in the country itself, but it actually has an impact on the globe. It's interesting that you mentioned Brazil and South Africa, two of the leading countries in the globe itself and closely aligned with China and Russia in the so-called BRICS. Brazil and South Africa have also had their fair share of conflict and instability over the years. Is Enel operating in any other countries experiencing conflict? Well, Enel operates in a number of countries that may be considered fragile or facing conflict. The company's activities in these countries are generally focused on energy generation and distribution. 
less so on the more sensitive issue of extraction. For example, as I mentioned, Enel operates in several African countries apart from South Africa. These include Morocco and Zambia, where the company has invested in renewable energy projects such as wind and solar power plants. Enel is also involved in a number of energy projects in Latin America, including Venezuela, Peru, and Chile, as well as Brazil, as I mentioned earlier. In some cases, Enel has faced challenges in operating in certain countries due to political or social instability. For example, the company's operations in Venezuela have been affected by the prolonged economic and political crisis in recent years. However, Enel has generally sought to maintain a long-term presence in the countries where it operates and has worked to build strong relationships with local communities and stakeholders. That sounds like quite the responsible approach, but doesn't it also mean that the company inevitably is not simply affected by instability, but probably also has to take a position on some very contentious social and political issues? Like any multinational company, that's absolutely right. Overall, Enel says its approach to operating in fragile countries or countries experiencing conflict is to focus on its core business of energy production and distribution, while also seeking to be a responsible corporate citizen and engage with local communities and stakeholders. But of course, you know, that's not always possible. And has it worked? Have they stayed out of trouble? Have they made a positive contribution? Well, Enel has been involved in some controversies and legal disputes over the years, including allegations of corruption and unethical business practices. In 2016, its subsidiary in Romania was fined by Romania's National Anti-Corruption Directorate for allegedly bribing public officials in order to secure contracts. In 2015, Enel's subsidiary in Slovakia was investigated by Slovak authorities over allegations of corruption and misuse of funds. The investigation focused on the procurement of equipment for a nuclear power plant. In addition, Enel has faced criticism from environmental groups and local communities over some of its energy projects. For example, its hydroelectric power plant in Chile has been the subject of protests by local indigenous communities who argue that the project has had a negative impact on their livelihoods and the environment. Overall, Enel says it's taken steps to address these issues and improve its corporate governance and social responsibility practices. And of course, that brings us back to corporate governance and who's in charge of it and who's doing what. The company's implemented a number of measures to prevent corruption and ensure compliance with local and international laws and regulations. It has established a code of ethics and conduct, and it's committed to promoting sustainable development and engaging with local communities in the country where it operates. But again, the key is who's doing the holding to account and what are the drivers, thus bringing us back to where we were about boards, corporate governance, who appoints them, and so on. That's absolutely true. But what fascinates me most about all of this is the engagement that companies like Enel have with stakeholders and communities in the areas where they operate. And speaking of stakeholders and communities, how bad will the U.S. debt default hit us and who will be most affected? Well, you really are pitching fastballs today. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Let's start with a quick definition because people keep talking about it, but Let's not assume everyone knows what it is. 
When the U.S. government borrows money by issuing treasury bonds and bills, it incurs debt. And the debt ceiling is a legal limit on the amount of debt that the U.S. government can have outstanding at any given time. If the debt ceiling is not raised, then the government may not be able to borrow more money to pay its bills and may be forced to default on its debt obligations. This means that the government would be unable to make payments on its existing debt, including payments to holders of U.S. Treasury bonds, bills, and notes. Defaulting on its debt obligation would have severe consequences for the U.S. economy. In what way? Well, even if any debt non-repayment would be temporary or a so-called brief default, Biden's economic advisors worry that this would lead to about 500,000 jobs lost. A longer so-called protracted default could decrease U.S. GDP by as much as 6% and lead to potentially thousands of businesses going under and millions of people becoming unemployed. This sounds as bad as the 2008 financial crisis. Almost, but it doesn't stop there, as there would be impacts on the global financial system and the U.S.'s ability to borrow money in the future. That said, it's important to note that a U.S. default is a rare event, but the consequences of such an event could be severe and long-lasting. So it's not just a question for the U.S., but it could have global ramifications. Absolutely. The U.S. defaulting on its debt ceiling would have significant global consequences, given the U.S.'s central role in the global economy and financial system. Some potential impacts could include economic turmoil. A U.S. default could trigger significant economic turmoil in the global economy, potentially leading to a recession or even a depression. It could cause investors to lose confidence in the U.S. economy, leading to a sharp sell-off in U.S. Treasuries and a rise in interest rates. Second, the financial market instability. The default could trigger widespread market volatility and a drop in global stock markets. This could lead to a decline in asset values such as stocks and bonds and reduce the value of investment portfolios, pension funds, and other financial assets. The third thing, currency fluctuations. A default could cause the value of the U.S. dollar to decline sharply, which could cause other currencies to appreciate in value. And this could make U.S. exports more competitive, but it could also increase the cost of imports and destabilize global currency markets. So there will be global political impacts as well then? Oh yeah. A U.S. default could damage U.S. credibility on the global stage potentially leading to political instability and reduced U.S. influence in international affairs. Overall, a U.S. default would likely have far-reaching and long-lasting consequences for the global economy and financial system. Therefore, it is crucial for the U.S. government to avoid default by raising the debt ceiling or finding a solution to reduce the debt burden. In addition, a U.S. default could also have a cascading effect on other countries, particularly those that hold significant amounts of U.S. debt. For example, China and Japan are the two largest foreign holders of U.S. debt, and a U.S. default could significantly impact their economies. Furthermore, 
A default could lead to a downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, which could increase borrowing costs, not just for the U.S. government, but for other borrowers as well. This could have a ripple effect on global interest rates, making it more expensive for individuals and businesses to borrow money. Now, that sounds to me like a U.S. default could also undermine the stability of the global financial system. The U.S. dollar, after all, is the world's reserve currency, and the U.S. Treasury market is considered to be one of the safest and most liquid markets in the world. A default could shake investors' confidence in the safety of U.S. Treasuries, which could then lead to a flight to safety into other assets, such as gold, could further destabilize global financial markets, and so on. So this really is a potential trigger for full-blown global economic crisis. (laughs) I would say so. As I said, a U.S. default would have significant and far-reaching consequences for the global economy, the financial system, and political stability. So it is crucial for the U.S. government to take appropriate measures to avoid default and maintain the confidence of investors and creditors around the world. Well, you say that, but it seems to me like they are cutting things very close to the wire. Janet Yellen says we will come up against the ceiling around June 1st, but the White House and the Republicans in Congress have only just had their first meetings, and they seem fairly entrenched in rather irreconcilable positions. What will we see in economies around the world in anticipation of a possible default? Well, as the U.S. gets closer to the chance of default, which, as you note, is predicted to be in less than a month, We will see increased volatility and uncertainty in the financial markets around the world. Investors may become more risk-averse, leading to a sell-off of risky assets such as stocks and emerging market currencies. And at the same time, investors may seek safety in traditional safe haven assets such as gold and the Swiss franc. Now, you already mentioned Japan and China. What about other countries that hold significant amounts of U.S. debt? Will they also come under increased pressure? If the U.S. defaults on its debt, it could lead to a loss of value in their holdings of U.S. treasuries and potentially destabilize their own economies. We may also see central banks and policymakers around the world take measures to mitigate the potential impact of a U.S. default. So, for example, central banks may intervene in currency markets to prevent excessive fluctuations in exchange rates, or they may lower interest rates to stimulate economic growth. Overall, the anticipation of a possible U.S. default could lead to increased uncertainty and volatility in financial markets and put pressure on other countries that hold U.S. debt It is crucial for policymakers in the U.S. to work towards a solution to avoid default and maintain the stability of the global economy. Now, that's really interesting, but also quite shocking in a way. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report and another report from the World Bank on the threats to sustainable growth. Debt was clearly an issue there, but more in the sense of sovereign defaults that countries experience. According to credit ratings agency Moody's, in 2022, there were six countries that defaulted on their bonds. Mali, Sri Lanka, Belarus, El Salvador, Ukraine, and Ghana. And Russia, of course, had its rating withdrawn. Then in the first couple of months of 2023, Argentina and Mozambique have also defaulted. And it looks like we might need to add Sudan to this list soon? 
yes, that is a possibility and a sad one at that. Clearly, the situation in Sudan is not helped by the fact that what started as a power struggle between the army and the powerful militia, which we talked about in the last podcast, could lead to all-out civil war and possibly draw in neighboring countries as well. There are already some 700,000 internally displaced people in other regions of Sudan, and about 150,000 who have fled to neighboring countries. The World Food Program now expects that another 2.5 million people will fall into hunger, which will add to the already 19 million Sudanese suffering acute food insecurity. And remember, that is almost half of the country's population of just over 43 million people. That this situation is not all the result of the current violence. No, of course not. Sudan has struggled with political and economic instability for years. and The recent fighting just compounds the country's deep economic crisis. In terms of external debt, overdue loan repayments and the fees that they incur, they are now about 140% of Sudan's annual gross domestic product. That's according to a report in the Financial Times. There's obviously no easy or quick solution here. And key lenders, including the IMF and China, will obviously wait for the war to end and then possibly re-engage. Speaking of sovereign defaults and ending wars, how do things look in Ukraine now? Well, economically bad for both sides and militarily still in a stalemate. Russia's very subdued Victory Day celebrations coincided with an increase in the tax rate on its oil and gas companies, obviously a measure to plug a serious sanction-induced hole in the Russian state budget. Ukraine at the moment survives economically, particularly through the help from its Western partners and especially the European Union. But in the longer term, I think Ukraine's prospects are much brighter. Russia, on the other hand, depends for 45% of its budget on the oil and gas sector. This is not sustainable in light of the green transition that we are seeing, however slow this might progress. Nor will there be much money left for companies to invest in diversification once they have been hit with Putin's tax increases. Now, and this, again, is quite a different story for companies like Enel, isn't it? Yes, it is. As we touched on earlier, Enel has invested quite a bit over the years into renewable energy and in a number of countries. And there, of course, is a lot to talk about because they're not the only ones in the sector who are doing that. But perhaps we wait to go deep on that for another time before we lose everyone completely. Now, last, and to my mind, the most important issue for us to discuss in this edition of the podcast, Eurovision. Indeed. The final of this year's competition will take place in Liverpool on Saturday. The UK did not win last year, but came a surprising second and offered its hosting services instead of last year's winner Ukraine. Obviously, there has always been a lot of geopolitics in the voting, and it will be really interesting to see how things will work out this year. With no jury vote and people from non-finalist countries being able to vote for their favorites as well. Mine, as always, will be Moldova, who have made it into the final after last night's semi-final competition. What about you? Ah, well, I haven't had time to listen to this year's songs. As you know, I have actually always favored Ukraine and Moldova's entries. They're usually the most fun. I give you Grandma Beats the Drums and Moldova's archful use of kazoos and unicycles in the past. 
Okay, I think that's it for this week. A big thank you to all our subscribers and listeners in all 43 countries. Yes, we have added two more countries to the list. Yes. If you aren't already signed up to receive Navigating the Vortex delivered straight to your inbox, you can find us by clicking on the link of the podcast player you are listening to this on, or you can Google us. We are hosted on all of your favorite podcasting outlets, including Apple and Spotify. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll get our columns and interviews, as well as alerts for new episodes of the Navigating the Vortex podcast. And all of the Navigating the Vortex on our radar pieces are available as audio briefs on the podcast. And we have started issuing our new PDQ reports, which are rapid responses prompted by breaking news. And subscribers get those delivered straight into their mailbox as well. If you're already a subscriber, thanks so much. Please share Navigating the Vortex with anyone you think might find it of interest. Forward the newsletter or share episodes or articles online that you've found interesting. We grow mostly through word of mouth, so please take a moment to rate and comment and also get in touch with us with your thoughts. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.